SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from fresh water to salt water. Yama, welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program this Monday, November 6, we have a conversation with Shine lawyer Sarah Thompson talking about a historic settlement between the Western Australian government and thousands of Indigenous Western Australians, Indigenous Western Australians whose wages were stolen over a lengthy period in a situation akin to modern-day slavery. As you'll hear with the settlement agreement, the Western Australian government also agreed to issue an official apology to the victims. Also in your program today, I caught up with Wiradjuri woman, artist and filmmaker Jasmine, ahead of the premiere of her movie Winangana later this week in several cities across the country. Also on NITV Radio today, according to a new report, when it comes to First Nations people and some other minorities, Livability in Australian major cities is far from being a rosy experience. And this situation prevails despite world rankings often depicting Australia's big cities like Melbourne, Sydney and Adelaide as some of, as some of the most livable cities in the world. All these stories and more coming to you on NITV Radio after the latest news. And today we are broadcasting from Nam on the land of the Wurundjeri Waiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Bertrand Tungandamingaya. I am Bertrand Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directly outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. Bulletin, the Western Australian government to apologise for historical theft of Aboriginal workers' wages after landmark settlement. The Israeli military completes its encirclement of Gaza, splitting the territory into two. And the coalition offers cautious support of negotiations with China on joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Western Australia's government has agreed to a historic $180.4 million settlement to address the decades-long injustice of wages stolen from thousands of Aboriginal workers between 1936 and 1972. The state will also issue a public acknowledgement and apology in Parliament at the end of the month to surviving and deceased Aboriginal workers. The settlement is subject to approval by the Federal Court of Australia with the court to, desi- to decide the exact amount for each claimant. Vicky Ansulatos from Shine Lawyers, who represented the claimant, says she hopes the class action can inspire greater understanding of the experiences of Aboriginal people in WA. 
the workers and their descendants suffered intergenerational disadvantage because of the legislation that was in place in the state of Western Australia over many decades, which affected the lives and livelihoods of Aboriginal people. A remote Indigenous community in Western Australia is renewing its calls for the state government to improve the quality of local drinking water, linking poor health to the water quality. Nitrate levels have been high for a number of years in the Goldfields region of Leverton. The organic compound is commonly found in groundwater. A drinking water quality report by local supplier Water Corporation found that over the past decade, nitrate levels peaked at nearly 40 milligrams per litre in 2020 in the Laverton Shire. That is 15 times higher when compared with the past suburb of Wanneroo. Wongatha Wonganara elder Annette Stokes told SBS it's frustrating to residents that the problem hasn't been addressed. Sad and angry because, you know, we spoke to them lot, lots of time around the table too and um, explained all that we can and all we're saying, you know, is fix it, help us fix it. And um, with our elders and even our people, you know, young people and all, you know, they're coming up and having kidney problems and it's a ro- terrible thing. Pacifica activists are calling on Australia to take farmer steps to reducing emissions, saying failure to do so is a violation of their human rights. The push comes ahead of the Pacific Islands Forum in the Cook Islands, which is due to begin this Monday, the 6th of November. Climate activists say the Pacific Islands are on the front line of climate change, with the future for many living there becoming increasingly uncertain. Director of 350 Pacific, Joseph Sikulu, says the emissions reduction target already set by Australia is not enough. We always say that Australia is a big brother nation in the Pacific and Australia really needs to start acting like that. And one of the difficult things about Australia's presence, especially within something like the Pacific Island Forum, is that it comes in with a lot of leverage and a lot of power. They should do more to try and push for the betterment of our region and the betterment of our people. The Israeli military says it has now encircled Gaza City, dividing the besieged Palestinian territory into two. Israeli Defense Force spokesperson Rear Admiral Admiral Daniel Hagari has described the move as an important stage in the war against the Hamas militant group who have controlled Gaza since 2007. Today, IDF forces led by the Golani unit surrounded Gaza City. Today, there is North Gaza and South Gaza. They reach the coastline. They hold this line. A broadcaster in the Philippines has been shot dead while while he was live on air. The National Union of Journalists in the Philippines has identified the journalist as Juan Humalon, saying in a statement that he was attacked by unidentified assailants while broadcasting from his home in a southern Philippines town. Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. has condemned the killing and ordered police to conduct an investigation to bring the assailants to justice. The federal opposition says Anthony Albanese should tread carefully around China's bid to join a Trans-Pacific trade bloc, an issue that is expected to arise when the Prime Minister meets Chinese President Xi Jinping in Beijing.
Premier Li Qiang has told a key international import-expo that China intends to advance its accession to the group and continue to promote the greater opening up of market opportunities in the country. Mr. Albanese has not ruled out backing China's application to join the 12-nation comprehensive and progressive agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, but also has said any country wishing to join must demonstrate it can meet the high standards of the agreement. Opposition Foreign Affairs spokesperson Simon Birmingham has told Sky News that is the appropriate response. China has not acted in good faith with Australia on trade terms recently. So we would need to see a good period of good faith engagement before considering membership. China really has systemic barriers to being able to meet the high standards of the TPP, which include strong rules around how state-owned enterprises uh, work in their economy. And so you would need to see reform in China ahead of any membership being entered into. The federal government says it's negotiating with the states and territories on a range of infrastructure projects following a review that has found Australia's investment pipeline was putting around $33 billion worth of cost pressures on the economy. Those talks involve working out what projects in in the investment pipeline are still needed. Infrastructure Minister Catherine King says she believes the management of infrastructure projects under the previous government is the reason for the projected increase and why costs now need to be reined in. The pipeline went from 150 to 800 projects under the previous government, a large proportion of those coming into the pipeline in the lead-up to the 2016 and the 2019 election campaigns. You can read what you might uh, want to uh, in terms of that timing. Many of them announced with very um, not, you know, not knowing how much the projects were actually going to cost, so those projects uh, are difficult to build because there isn't enough money to build them. A new survey suggests one in four nurses in primary health care plan to leave their job in the next two to five years because of stress and exhaustion at work. The startling findings come from the annual study by the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association, APNA, which surveyed about 4,000 people, the largest sample in the 15 years it has been conducted. APNA President Karen Booth says the loss of experienced personnel from the profession would be felt for years in important areas such as heart health education and management programs, vaccinations, wound care and screening for diseases including breast cancers. Those in primary health care work Sorry, those in primary health care work outside hospitals within general practice, aged care facilities, schools and other settings and make up one in seven of the 640,000 registered health professionals in Australia. And to sport, Novak Djokovic has eased past Grigor Dimitrov to claim his seventh Paris Masters title with the top-seeded Serbian outclassing the Bulgarian 6-4, 6-3 in the final. Dimitrov put up more of a fight in the second set, but he could not prevent Djokovic from taking his 40th ATP Masters 1000 title. Victory was seeded when Dimitrov sent a backhand wide, extending Djokovic's win to 18 matches since his defeat by Carlos Alcaraz in the Wimbledon title clash in July. Djokovic says he had to fight hard to claim the match. I somehow managed to, I guess... Yeah, find an extra shot over the net, and uh, I think 
match was closer than the scoreline indicates, uh, but you know, another amazing win for me. So I'm very proud of this one, considering what I've been through this week. And now having a look at the weather around the country, boom, broom, sunny, 32 degrees, Perth, partly cloudy, 26, Adelaide, sunny, 28, Melbourne, mostly sunny, 28, Hobart, partly cloudy, 21, Albury, Wodonga, 27, and a sunny day, Canberra, much the same, 24, Wollongong, cloudy, 21, Sydney, similar conditions, 23, Newcastle, cloudy, 22, Brisbane, possible shower 24, Townsville, partly cloudy 29, Keynes, much the same 31, Alice Springs, partly cloudy 36, Darwin, a shower 234, and the Strait Islands, a sunny day ahead and a top of 31 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. I'm Bertrand Tungandame and you're listening to TV Radio broadcasting uh, this Monday afternoon from Nam on the land of the Wurundjeri Waiwarang people of the Kulin Nation. Coming up next, we'll have a conversation with the Wiradjuri woman, artist and filmmaker Jazz Monet talking about her movie, Winangana, a movie that explores how archives and the legacies of collection affect First Nations people and wider Australia. The movie will be premiering in uh, some Australian cities uh, later this week. And according to a new report, when it comes to First Nations people and uh, some minority groups, livability in Australian major cities is far from being a rosy experience. And this, despite world rankings, often placing Australia's big cities like Melbourne, Sydney and Adelaide as some of the most livable cities in the world. But first, let's look at a historic settlement last week with the Western Australian government agreeing to redress a stolen wages issue affecting thousands of Indigenous people in WA. The West Australian government has settled a class action for stolen wages on behalf of many thousands of Aboriginal Australians who worked in WA and were paid little or no wages while they were subject to legislation in effect from 1936 to 1972. And to discuss this positive outcome, I'm joined by Sarah Thompson of Shine Lawyers. Welcome to NITV Radio. Hi, thanks so much for having me. This is a historic class action settlement that will see claimants getting paid up to $180 million going to eligible Aboriginal workers or their surviving spouses and children. $180 million may sound like a very big amount, but is this the right price for what they went through? I think at the end of the day, no amount of money or compensation is going to make up for what happened to the First Nations people who were impacted by the legislation. We're not setting out to say that it's enough. Nothing could be enough for what they had to go through, but we want them to get some justice and getting some money and apology and acknowledgement from the Western Australian government we see as being really important to help people. The money will help people and the acknowledgement will help people, um, we hope, in feeling like they've gotten some justice and some recognition for the wrongs that they suffered. 
So to be clear, on top of this amount, there will be a formal apology from uh, the Western Australian government to, I'd say, the victims of uh, this situation. Absolutely. So the Western Australian government has indicated that they will give their apology and acknowledgement on the 28th of November this year, and they'll do that in Parliament, the Western Australian Parliament. Considering this uh, took place over several decades, can you tell us what could have happened, what happened exactly during that period, how people could work with uh, no pay or little pay? Uh, explain to us uh, what these people went through. In terms of how it happened, there was quite a, a number of um, bits of legislation or law that we control, that we call the control legislation. And what that did was we imposed oppressive and discriminatory regimes of control over First Nations people about their employment, their finances. So they really had no control over that aspect of their lives. So to give you some context around that, I can give you a couple of examples. So we've got a story from a group member who, you know, they grew up on stations where his parents worked. So his parents worked in the kitchen and did some stock work. His parents received rations for their work, so they would have gotten tea, flour, sugar, that, that sort of stuff from the station store. And when this group member was still a child, he also had to start working around the stock camp. And he was working before sunrise until after sunset, and he wasn't paid any money for this work. He then went on to work on a couple of other stations through the Kimberleys, where he just wasn't paid adequate wages, and he was only given rations. Another example of a group member who grew up at a mission, um, she was placed there after being removed from her mother. She started working in that mission as a young girl. She was cooking, cleaning, doing other domestic work. She was attending to patients in a, cl- like a medical clinic run by the mission. And she wasn't paid for that work except for getting about $2 once. Um, you know, on, on top of that, of not getting paid, she also suffered really bad punishment inflicted on her by the nuns at the mission. So that, I guess, gives a bit of a, you know, a couple of examples as to what our group members went through and it was was pretty horrific. Now this might not come from the government's coffers, Uh, these people were working for private enterprises or private entities, Uh, uh, shouldn't those also be required to chip in uh, the compensation? So the way that the, 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 well at least that our claim worked was that we said that the state of Western Australia was responsible for all of that because um, it was the government who had the control over people because of its legislation. So those other places, you know, the private uh, employers and so forth, yes, are involved, but we say, well, we alleged that the ultimate control was with the government. Now, it's said that the settlement is subject to approval by the Federal Court of Australia. Is that just another formality or it could be rejected and see the claimants go through some more suffering? court definitely has to give approval that's how every class action works we're hopeful that the judge won't take issue with the way that the parties have agreed to settle this yes he he could say that he's got a problem but we don't think that that's going to be an issue it's a it's taken not only a legal approach but also leadership from uh, the government uh, in having this uh, situation come to a positive outcome sure yeah, so I, I can't speak on behalf of the government, but, you know, we definitely do commend them for the way that they've settled this matter. We're really happy that we've settled and we haven't had to go to trial because that would have been quite traumatic for our group members who would have had to have given um, evidence and had to hear all this all, all 
aired through the courts again. Before I let you go, any closing thoughts? Yeah, we're really happy with the outcome and we hope that um, our group members feel the same. Um, we've worked really hard on this matter. It's something that we've believed in for a really long time. You know, if you work, you deserve to get paid. It's as simple as that. Yeah, we hope it, we hope it brings our group members a feeling of a bit of justice at least. Something positive to talk about at least. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Sarah Thompson, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio on uh, such short notice. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we must now step aside for our break. But when we return, we explore Jazz Monet's new film, Winangana, an exploration of how archives and collections affect First Nations people and the wider community. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Coming up next, poetry, art and history come together on screen. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Winangana is the Wiradjuri word for remember, know and think. Winangana is also the name of a new film by Wiradjuri artist Jasmine. The film is best described as a lyrical journey of archival footage and sound, poetry and original composition. The film Winangana explores how archives and the legacies of collections affect First Nations people and the wider Australian community. And I'm glad to say Jasmine has just joined us on NITV Radio to take us through the making of Winangana and more. Jasmine, welcome to NITV Radio again. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Now, take us through the journey into the making of uh, Winangana. Um, it's been a long journey. I started working on Winangana uh, in the second half of 2021, and it was always intended to be quite a short project, but because of um, the complexities of making a film like this and, and working with archival footage in this way, it meant that... Um, yeah, it's been it's been a long journey, <laughs> and it's very exciting to now be at the point where um, the film's coming out and going to be seen by audiences. It's um, quite nerve wracking as well. But basically, I've been working with the National Film and Sound Archive in Canberra for the past two years, um, going really deep into their digital collection, which comprises millions of sound and visual archives from across the continent. And I've been making a film that pertains specifically to how uh, archives and audiovisual content has affected the lives of First Nations people then and now and how we can uh, look at the legacies of these collections and try to try to address some of the harm that's been done and try to make those spaces safer for the future while also celebrating First Nations uh, content creators and audiovisual storytellers that are have been telling stories the whole time. Yeah, I had the privilege of previewing the movie and uh, I can say there are archives and sounds that are not that positive, but there are also some very positive stories uh, for history buff myself. Like myself, it's a really a treasure trove of uh, information. Uh, I particularly liked uh, the positive images, uh, trailblazers, uh, opinion leaders, uh, like watching a kind of footage of Cathy Freeman running at the Olympics. Well, I, I won't reveal much. I'll let the audience uh, go and discover by themselves. 
<laughs> the process must have really been challenging over what to choose, what to leave out. There's so much information out there. It, ha- it must have been really a challenge uh, selecting what to include and uh, what to leave out. Absolutely. The film could be thousands of hours long. There is so much. There is so much material and there is so much to say. And it was really, really hard to decide what would make it into the final cut. And some of those things were my artistic choices. And then a lot of them were practical choices, things that already were in the NFSA digital collection, things that I could use legally, things that I could use culturally. And the way that the story was to be told, you know, um, I had given myself a pretty robust scaffold, those five chapters that you spoke about and, and really understood the way that the film would be told across these five chapters. I guess having a background as like a poet as well really helped me sort of understand how I was going to frame the story in that way. So I watched hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage. I looked at hundreds and hundreds of titles. Some of that stuff was really awful and some of it was really beautiful and finding the way to string it together to tell a story that felt cohesive and took audiences on a journey that told the story that I was trying to tell, that I am trying to tell. Yeah, it was a really hard process. Very good uh, poetic and uh, excellent storytelling. I also liked uh, the way you bring in some um, very challenging figures, but uh, using uh, poetry and uh, very good and powerful spoken word artistry with uh, Stephen Oliver, who presents the very challenging numbers of um, indigenous incarceration. There's also the way you speak about... uh, what I would call myself a rampant Australian generations that uh, is ongoing, really challenging statistics, uh, but uh, told uh, with humour, nevertheless still very educational. Yeah, a, a lot of that sort of contextual stuff that made it into the film made it in initially because this film has always been intended to be seen by overseas audiences as well. One of the original partners for the whole project was the British Film Institute in London. In the formulating of the film, I always knew that it was going to be seen internationally. And that was a really interesting challenge because I typically make for First Nations audiences first. And, and that's the real joy and privilege of the work that I get to do as a Wiradjuri person. Um, and then when non-Indigenous audiences see my work, I understand that there are certain things that they will understand and certain things that they won't. And I'm, I'm okay with that. But in the context of making for an international audience, I realised that there were certain things that I couldn't assume that people would know about Australia. Um, And so that's where a lot of that sort of bigger historical stuff comes in and those sort of um, zoomed out view of of politics and of history. And in doing that, I actually realised how many gaps there are in the white Australian knowledge set anyway. And that, I think, was a really um, surprising and also powerful effect of sort of taking that zoomed out view because you do get a lot of that data and statistics and sort of historical facts. I think presented in this way feels compelling, even though it's stuff that we as First Nations people are very, very familiar with. I think it does create the point and then creates the point of resistance and love and solidarity and joy as a form of protest much, much greater than it would have without that sort of uh, bedrock of history. Yeah, you bring all these stories together very, very beautifully. I like the way you actually introduce uh, all the chapters with uh, poetry 
think these poems uh, would do very well as uh, just a standalone uh, piece of work. But I must come to one of the chapters, uh, chapter four, I believe, where you say the stories were stolen, not given. Can you elaborate on this uh, for us? Like you said, the film has these um, five chapters and each one is introduced by a poem um, or part of a poem that I've written that I sort of wrote so that I understood what was happening in each chapter, but also to give the audience something to hold on to because it is a huge amount of information that you're getting um, just watching this archival footage. So the poem there presents like a bit of a pause and a bit of space and a bit of like sort of road signs so that you know what is about to happen. That idea of, of stories not given but taken really came from looking at this abundance of archival imagery and knowing how little of the, the historical stuff was done with consent, how much was done without community approval or consultation and also without community sign-off and also without community knowing now where those things are. That was something that was really, really hard for me as someone going through the archive to keep encountering footage of people and families and country and kin, knowing that it was very unlikely that the people depicted in that footage knew that that footage existed, which is a really, really horrifying thing to sort of encounter. Um, That sort of idea of story not given but taken sits in parallel in the film with then reflecting on the stories that we choose to tell and the ways that we choose to tell them and the generosity of First Nations people in telling stories and um, reclaiming stories and reclaiming narratives that have been taken from us because we know that history is incredibly biased and we know that archives are non-neutral spaces that are designed to tell a particular narrative that uh, supports the colony and supports the the ideals of the colony, which isn't something that serves First Nations people. So challenging those narratives and bringing them into context of why they were made is a really big part of the overall purpose of Wenangana. And there's another chapter that I liked uh, really, really very much. It's uh, a chapter about uh, what the stories uh, First Nations people would tell if uh, power was uh, given back to them. Uh, what stories would they tell? I mean, I think we can sort of see that in the way that stories are being told now and uh, how different those legacies are understood when we have incredible First Nations filmmakers from across the continent who are who are now telling these stories. I think there is a long way to go until we get a proper representation and balance of the way that that story is told. But, um, you know, in the past 50 years, there's been this huge new understanding of, of the power of these medias. And as Blackfellas, like, we're master technicians, master understanders of tools and story and narrative. And so it makes sense that we innovate in these spaces. Something that was really apparent to me in going through the archives was how many innovations First Nations filmmakers have made for generations and how little I knew about that. Um, I feel like there has there is this incredible wealth of filmmaking and storytelling and audio creation and, and rock music, all music, but particularly rock music. Yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> The fact that I didn't know a lot of these things that are really significant and I only learned about them because I had this privilege of going through the archive points to me about like these kind of gaps of things that we celebrate 
in the wider society and also uh, the way that things sort of get forgotten. That's something that I was really saddened to learn and also really inspired to sort of put energy into. The movies premiering in cinemas across major cities uh, next week. Are there any plans to screen it and uh, take it into schools? Because I believe it's very educational and uh, eye-opening and worth uh, really uh, showing it to the widest uh, possible audience. Uh, I absolutely um, hope that it does make it into some curriculums. I think that would be really, really exciting. We haven't um, developed an education resource kit yet, but that's you know a plan. I think it will be really interesting to see how it's received by audiences because, you know, I've, I've been working on it for a while now, but I'm I'm very nervous to see how people will receive the film. Um, it's been a very long personal journey and it's also dealing with content that is really, really fraught. I think you're right. It is an educational tool uh, and one that I hope fits in a larger tapestry of um, how we tell these stories going forward and how we look at archives and look at historical documents going forward. Absolutely, and I think it's also part of uh, truth-telling. Now, before I let you go, anything you'd like to add to the conversation or bring to the attention of our listeners? Yeah, I might just add that I, I should have said that in the process of making the film, I was also really lucky to work with the incredible uh, Marawari and Filipino uh, composer and rapper uh, Dobby, a.k.a. Ryan Clapham, and um, that he has done an original score for Wanangana, which just is incredibly moving and beautiful and powerful and um, was one of the great gifts of working on this film, really, uh, was, was getting to work with a multitude of people, working with researchers, working with curators, working with archivists and, and friends and family, like so many people contributed to the making of, of this project. And um, it's very, very much taken a village. And it's exciting to sort of be able to now share that. Jasmine, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about your latest uh, movie. Wanangana, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it was really lovely to get to Yarn. NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook. Now, the National Film and Sound Archives, in association with the Sydney Film Festival, will present Winangana, the 64-minute feature film at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, later this week on November 10. The film will debut in Canberra on the 15th of November. In Melbourne, audiences can see the film at a free screening at uh, ACME on the 6th of December. And a free screening is uh, expected in Brisbane. It will take place on the 26th of January at the Australian Cinematheque Quagoma, with further screenings around Australia to take place in 2024. Now, time for another break. Coming up next, after the break, uh, Australia's largest cities as livable as they are proclaimed to be. Especially for everyone, including First Nations people? Well, the answer after the break. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. Welcome back. Now, Australia's big cities like Melbourne, Sydney and Adelaide often rank as some of the most, most livable places in the world. But not for everyone. 
and not everyone rates these cities highly. A new report has now found First Nations, non-binary and women have some of the worst living experiences in Australian cities. Kara Hain reports. Australia is said to be getting less livable for First Nations people and some other community groups. A new State of Place report by data research organisation PlaceScore shows that livability in Australia decreased overall for many Australians. But First Nations people and non-binary groups are the most hit. Chief Executive of PlaceScore, Kylie Legg, says the report highlights what people care about in their neighbourhoods. Uh, the census shows that um, what we all want are neighbourhoods that are green, walkable, that are really well cared for, and where we care for each other, as well as being quite compact in that there's sort of easy to get from your house to local shops or parks or other services. The report surveyed over 25,000 Australians of different social and cultural backgrounds to get a sense of what it's like to live in various communities across the country. The findings make up the country's largest social research database on livability and they provide insights into the satisfaction and well-being of people from various places and demographics. According to the report, livability varies, sometimes significantly, depending on individual neighbourhoods and the demographics within them. Authors of the reports suggest that not all neighbourhoods are created equal and not all communities are enjoying the same advantages. Ms. Legg says some minority groups reported the lowest scores for livability. The two groups, um, unfortunately, with some of the lowest levels of livability are those people um, who identify as First Nations or that don't identify as male or female. And we know these groups are some of the most vulnerable and kind of, I guess, because they are also in many cases minorities. But it really reveals that um, they're not experiencing the same levels of livability as the rest of the community um, and it's across the board so their scores are quite low across all 50 metrics. Dr Lucy Gon is a senior research fellow with the Healthy Livable Cities Lab at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT in Melbourne. Ms. Gon says the results are not unusual. We do know that a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders people, some of them live in low SES areas. So when we're looking at this from an objective point of view, um, using data that is uh, coming from the ABS, which is the Australian Bureau of Statistics, um, using their socioeconomic index for areas, we tend to find that a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people live in poorer areas, essentially. And so when they're looking at the quality of their environment, they're rating it um, given that it's a poorer environment. So what we tend to find is that we've got people who individually might be of low socioeconomic status, but then they live in these poor environments as well. Um, And so it's not really a surprise that we see them rating the livability of their areas um, not particularly well in this report. Although non-binary and First Nations people had the lowest livability scores, other groups with low scores are single-parent families and people between the ages of 25 to 44. 
and women are sitting on a lower livability matrix compared to men. I think we have really revealed that there's a connection between the density of neighbourhoods, being lower densities are definitely less livable for the communities um, from their perspective um, and that we also see a relationship between uh, poorer livability, um, social and economic disadvantage as well as poorer mental health. So better neighbourhoods, uh, better financially as well as for the wellbeing of the community. And Ms Gunn believes that while Australian cities are doing well, more needs to be done across all parts of the country, especially in rural areas. She says it is important to have socially cohesive and inclusive spaces that are environmentally sustainable for all. A continual problem that we seem to have is that we have lower density cities in the middle and outer ring suburbs and we have less public transport and less destinations for people to go to. Um, And this creates all sorts of unusual situations that can lead to inequities. So inequities in access to employment, um, inequities in access to education and also we tend to end up pushing people um, um, because of how to f- housing affordability and also availability now uh, onto the fringes. And so this creates more inequities for, for certain um, groups of our society. And so this is where I think Australia really needs to do a little bit more work in terms of making sure that the cities um, broadly, so middle and outer ring suburbs as well as the inner suburbs, all have good access to the, the key ingredients that make for livable cities. Omobello. SBS News. NITV Radio. Share our stories on Facebook. I'm Bertrand Tungandame. Thanking you for staying with me this uh, Monday afternoon. Your program will be back on Wednesday and Friday with more stories from uh, right across the country. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.